This week, can treating fever in the ICU save lives? Does calcium really prevent fractures? Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I'm joined by my friend Janice Kwan, who is a general internist at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. Hey, Janice, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Very well. Thank you very much. So today Janice and I are going to be talking about two articles and uh, then doing our Good Stuff segment, bringing you short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So Janice, let's just jump right in. You wanted to talk about acetaminophen for fever in critically ill patients. So why don't you tell me about this article? Yeah, so I want to talk about a randomized control trial recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, aptly called the HEAT study, and they found that early administration of acetaminophen in critically ill patients to treat fever due to probable infection did not affect the number of ICU-free days. Okay, so I have to say that I am not at all surprised that treating critically ill patients with acetaminophen or Tylenol is uh, not helpful to the extent of saving lives or getting people out of the U- out of the ICU faster. It's kind of like trying to put out a, a, f- a forest fire with like a squirt gun. So tell me why people even thought that this was plausible and why you found this interesting. So firstly, I chose this paper because As we all know, in the hospital, it's almost reflexive to give Tylenol in the setting of fever and infection. And so I wanted to reflect back and pause and think a little bit about the physiology behind it. And so reading a little bit behind the rationale made me realize it was something important to talk about. Okay, so what is the rationale? So on the one hand, there's an argument that fever plays an important host response in the setting of infection. And since it is indeed so metabolically costly, its preservation across time and across species suggests that it's probably conferring a good evolutionary advantage. Yeah, I mean, I always had this impression that the fever existed because it was helping fight the infection, if assuming it was an infection that caused it. Exactly. However, if we think about the evolution of modern medicine and critical care physiologic support, whereby patients are maintained at essentially supra-physiologic states, the question now becomes, is having a fever still advantageous? And is there a benefit to treating the fever? Right. And I guess the the corollary would be, you know, uh, the overwhelming inflammatory response to, for example, sepsis is known to cause some of them will be associated with the adverse outcomes. So sort of in a same vein, is fever helpful or harmful when you get to that degree of illness? Exactly. And currently, the evidence to answer that question is mixed. On the one hand, in favor of treating the fever, there was a randomized controlled trial published in 2012, and it looked at physical cooling of critical care patients in septic shock, They cooled patients to normal body temperature, and this was associated with both a reduction in 14-day mortality as well as a reduction in presser dosing. Although I guess people don't believe that enough to make that common practice. Well, exactly. And I guess on the other end of the coin, or on the other side of the coin is what I should say, um, a couple of observational studies have shown that early peak temperature is associated with a reduction in risk of death 
among patients in the ICU with infection. So really, uh, in this setting, there is true equipoise as to whether or not addressing a fever in this particular patient population is either beneficial, harmful, or ineffective. Okay, so I have to admit, you've piqued my interest with this rationale. So tell me, how did they conduct this trial and go about trying to answer this sort of fundamental question? So what the investigators did is they randomly assigned 700 ICU patients with fever, and this was defined as a body temperature greater than or equal to 38 degrees Celsius, enrolled from 23 medical surgical ICUs in Australia and New Zealand. These patients had known or suspected infection, and they were randomized to receive either one gram of IV acetaminophen or placebo, which was an identical bag of D5W or an identical looking bag of D5W, they received the Tylenol every six hours until either they were discharged from the ICU, they had a resolution of their fever, they stopped using their antimicrobial therapy, or if the patient died. Okay, so what did they find? So their primary outcome was ICU-free days, and this is essentially a composite outcome combining both mortality and ICU length of stay. Using an intention-to-treat analysis, they found that there was no difference in this primary outcome. Furthermore, they found no difference at all in any of their secondary outcomes, notably no difference in death at 90 days in both groups, whereby approximately 16% in each group had died by 90 days. Okay, so there was no benefit to early or aggressive treatment of the fever using acetaminophen. Exactly, and just to point back to the physiologic part of the story, they did find that those assigned to receive acetaminophen actually had reduction in their mean daily peak and average body temperature as compared to those who had placebo. However, this didn't pan out when they looked at actual outcomes. Right, so they were at least able to reduce temperature, they just weren't able to improve outcomes. Exactly. Were all ICU patients included any ICU patient with a fever or did they exclude any types of patients? They excluded essentially those who had a contraindication to acetaminophen, namely those with liver dysfunction. Okay. So before we jump into interpreting the results of this finding, are there any limitations to this study? There are a few. There are two specifically that make me take pause. The first of which is that the investigators chose to use IV acetaminophen. Their rationale behind that is they wanted to address any confounding that would be introduced with differences in enteral absorption of the medication. That makes complete sense to me. However, thinking about practicing in the Canadian context and not having access to IV acetaminophen, that's one thing that makes me uh, take pause on these results. Sure, although I guess that would be more of a concern if this were a positive finding and we were trying to generalize to other settings and start using acetaminophen more, right? That's true. I guess what I'm really lamenting at is that we just don't have it here. (laughs) Okay. Um, and the second thing is that they, although they chose importantly to look at uh, a true hard clinical outcome of uh, composite mortality ICU length of stay outcome, they didn't look at uh, patient reported outcome measures. And so if we think, uh, at least anecdotally, even personally or with patients that we look after, having a fever and an infection is not a pleasant sensation. And we know that sometimes when patients take Tylenol, they feel better because they have less chills, they're not drenched in sweats, they have less pain. And so I think, importantly, these would be questions that should be running through our minds as well. 
Yeah, I guess if we were thinking about the application of acetaminophen to a broader population in terms of treating fever, you know, like the, the, I guess the question that's maybe more relevant to your practice and my practice would be, you know, in, in general medical patients who maybe are not critically ill, but are acutely unwell, should we be using acetaminophen to treat fevers on the ward? Or is that a practice where we could choose wisely and not be using all this acetaminophen? Exactly. And I think the other thing to make note of is at least between the two groups in this critically ill population, there was no difference in adverse events. Right. So at least it's safe exactly. in this context. I wonder if it would have been very hard to get patient reported outcomes in critically ill patients. I think that's a reasonable question to ask. Yeah. So let's come back to the main rationale for this study, which is, does this randomized control trial answer any of the fundamental questions that you raised? So does it answer whether fever is good or bad? I think that's tough to answer. And the reason for that is that we could never design a randomized trial where we would assign patients to fever. We can only have trials where we assign patients to treatment of fever. And I think at least with this trial, we can say that giving patients IV acetaminophen does not appear to affect ICU-free days in this critically ill population. Okay, so it kind of doesn't answer the fever question of whether fever is good or bad, but it does answer the question of whether aggressively treating fever is helpful. Right, so I guess the jury's still out on that. Okay. Thanks, Janice. So ultimately, I have to say you won me over that this was, I think, a worthwhile conversation to have. Good. That's always my aim. (laughs) Okay, Let's move on to our second topic. Our second paper this week is Raising the Calcium Controversy, a systematic review published in the British Medical Journal by Boland and colleagues, showed that dietary calcium intake is not associated with risk of fracture, that there is no clinical trial evidence about dietary calcium intake and preventing fractures, and they question whether calcium supplementation prevents fractures. So right away, this trial seems to really challenge the conventional wisdom that taking calcium is good for you. Um, Tell me a little bit more about the rationale as to why you chose this paper and also why is it so interesting to discuss? Yeah, so I chose this study, which uh, is a systematic review and a partial meta-analysis, because Calcium is ubiquitously used uh, by clinicians. We predominantly feel that it's safe and I think generally feel that it's probably helpful. Uh, And this study at least raises the question about what is the evidence for this incredibly common practice. So dietary guidelines suggest about 1,200 milligrams per day of calcium. That's what the Canadian uh, nutritional guidelines suggest. And we know that in developed Western countries like Canada, almost 30 to 50% of older women have been instructed to take calcium supplements. So, you know, we use it all the time just in our own medical practice. If we ever see a patient, uh, older patient with falls or, you know, any possible risk of uh, low bone density, we pretty much instantaneously and reflexively put them on calcium and vitamin D supplementation. It also validates my personal addiction to cheese. (laughs) There you go. So the authors of this article also raised the point that it's 
not necessarily harmless. And in fact, the authors themselves, this authorship group, are the authors that have published several studies questioning the possible harms or raising possible harms associated with calcium intake, including increased cardiovascular events, kidney stones, and gastrointestinal symptoms. So I think it's fair to say that this authorship group, on the basis of you know their own body of work, is somewhat skeptical of the use of calcium. So tell me, how did they go about addressing this controversy? Yeah, so this was a systematic review. They included studies where fracture was reported as an outcome, although not necessarily the primary outcome of studies. And what studies. kind of fractures did they look at? So they looked at all fractures, uh, including total fracture as well as vertebral and hip fractures uh, and forearm fractures. They also included studies that included patients who were predominantly of older age, age greater than 50. They excluded studies where participants had major comorbidities other than osteoporosis. So they wanted to sort of really focus on this question in a relatively you know, healthy population. And for the portion of this study about dietary calcium, there wasn't enough data to do a meta-analysis. So they simply provided a systematic review and narrative analysis of the data. And for the calcium supplementation data, they performed a meta-analysis on the randomized control trials that analyzed that question. Great. What did they find? Okay, so they kind of broke down their analysis into two categories. First, just talking about dietary calcium intake. So there were only two randomized control trials of dietary sources of calcium, and this involved a total of 262 patients, so obviously not a large uh, body of evidence. So the two randomized control trials uh, used different dietary sources of calcium, and they basically randomized people to uh, taking more of that dietary source or not. So one was milk powder, and the other was hydroxyapatite, which is a calcium-containing preparation. Right. So the patients weren't actually assigned to consume, say, a set amount of milk, or for me, a set amount of cheese. Well, it was milk powder and hydroxyapatite, but it could have been perhaps tailored to the Janice Kwan cheese intake scale. Just as I like it. So that was the, the randomized control trial. So two, two studies, small number of patients, 260 patients. And neither showed a significant effect of the dietary intake on fracture risk. They then looked at 44 cohort studies of dietary calcium, and this included 290,000 participants. Importantly, many of these studies did not use fractures as a primary outcome. They may have just reported on fractures at some point in the the numerous outcomes that, that were being measured in these studies. And so the authors were unable to meta-analyze this data. So instead, the way they report it is they tell us that 74% of the studies reported no significant relationship between calcium intake and fracture. And of the remaining 25%, there was a small relationship between calcium intake and fracture with odds ratios ranging between 0.5 and 2, which are not particularly strong evidence of a large effect in observational studies. So that was how they reported it. And basically their conclusion from that is that there is limited to no evidence that dietary calcium is associated with fracture risk. So I find the results of this analysis surprising. Were there any limitations at all? Yeah, so uh, there are several limitations to the dietary calcium analysis. So 
One is that, as I mentioned, oftentimes the fracture was not the primary outcome. And so, you know, measurement of the outcome may not have been perfect within the studies. And also their inability to meta-analyze the data makes it a little bit difficult to interpret because we know that there are, you know, almost 300,000 patients in these cohorts overall. And then they tell us that 74% of the studies report no relationship, but we don't know of the 15 studies that do report, you know, were they better quality than the other studies? How many patients were in those 15 studies than in the other uh, ones that didn't show an effect? So to me, the way the data was reported is a little bit challenging to interpret. And then finally, the authors themselves say that they had difficulty finding all relevant cohort studies because their search terms using fracture as an outcome, in fact, didn't necessarily identify a lot of the studies because fracture wasn't necessarily the primary outcome in, in these studies. So there may be other cohort studies that, that could comment on dietary calcium intake and fracture. The studies just weren't specifically designed for that. And furthermore, you mentioned that they excluded patients with any significant comorbidities. And one thing I would think about is how relevant this is to the patient population that we look after, which is frequently a very frail, comorbid patient population. Yeah, I would say this speaks more to an ambulatory, uh, relatively healthy, older patient population. So that was the dietary calcium part. And then the second part that they looked at was calcium supplements. So we do have a lot of randomized control trials. Uh, so these authors found 26 randomized control trials with almost 70,000 total participants. The calcium supplementation in these randomized control trials was often combined calcium and vitamin D supplementation or different forms of calcium. So there is some heterogeneity amongst the methodology of these trials. What they found was that calcium reduced the risk of total fracture with a relative risk of 89%, so an 11% relative risk reduction, which was statistically significant. And the baseline incidence of fracture, total fracture, was about 12%. So the absolute reduction was, you know, 11% of 12%. So if I haven't made your head spin with these numbers, that's, you know, about an absolute risk reduction just over 1%. And so to make that a little bit easier for us clinicians to understand, in the meta-analyzed evidence, there's a number needed to treat of 77 patients for about six years of follow-up in order to prevent one fracture of any kind. They also looked specifically at vertebral fracture, and they found a relative risk reduction of 86%. Uh, which, based on a, ver a, a lower incidence of vertebral fracture, is a number needed to treat of 489 patients over six years. Do you find that to be clinically relevant? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a really great question. The number needed to treat of 77 to prevent any fracture seems in line with many of the other number needed to treat that are important at a population level. And, you know, obviously you'd have to weigh the harms of calcium supplementation. But to me, that seems relevant. That seems like not something that uh, could easily be dismissed. Especially for a treatment that's relatively simple, meaning calcium. Yeah, and relatively cheap probably as well. Now, these authors would disagree with me. So their conclusion is that uh, these are not compelling numbers needed to treat. And their conclusions are that, you know, there is weak 
RCT evidence suggesting a benefit of calcium supplementation. And one of the things they comment on in their paper is that they felt that one large randomized control trial was driving a lot of the effect. And this was a study of elderly French women in residential care who had low baseline vitamin D levels. And they found that co-administration of calcium and vitamin D reduced hip fractures and fractures uh, significantly. And those uh, results, they said, were somewhat different than the uh, results found in several of the other randomized control trials. I guess for me, what remains in my mind or what remains unanswered in my mind is whether we've disentangled calcium from vitamin D in the osteoporosis story. Yeah, I totally agree. So that's one of the questions that uh, these authors raise as an important area for future work is it would be helpful to have a randomized control trial examining the effect of calcium separate from vitamin D so that we don't reflexively always prescribe the two together if not necessary. So I guess to wrap up then, Amol, what is your takeaway from this study? I think my takeaway is that I am just plain confused about calcium. So Canadian guidelines and guidelines around the world recommend calcium supplementation uh, or at least 1,200 milligrams of dietary calcium intake and then supplementation on top of that if required uh, for all adults over the age of 50. And certainly in practice, we prescribe calcium with the belief that it's possibly has a modest benefit and unlikely to have a lot of harm. And this study raises the question of the strength of our evidence for that. Um, And, you know, my conclusion from this study is that calcium supplementation seems to be associated with a small, modest benefit in total fracture risk. And the amount of dietary calcium intake that's required is still unclear. I think that's the major takeaway from this study. And I guess we'll wait for future work to try to help us sort that out. And I think at the end of the day, I probably won't change my practice in terms of still using calcium supplementation in older, higher risk patients uh, and recommending that people have good calcium and balanced intake in their diet. Great. Thanks. Let's move on to our good stuff segment. Each week, we bring you short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So Janice, what caught your eye this week? So what's exciting for me this week in the world of medicine is the recently released Institute of Medicine report on improving diagnosis in healthcare. I'm sure we're all familiar with the first two reports in their series, In 2000 to Air is Human, In 2001, Crossing the Quality Chasm, The next one in the series talks about an important but underrepresented field in the quality dialogue, which is that of diagnostic error. The soundbite that has been floating around over the past couple of weeks is that most people will experience at least one diagnostic error in their lifetime, often with devastating consequences. And so I would encourage all of our readers to check it out. Um, Really interesting topic, lots of things to think about. Okay, thanks, Janice. My good stuff this week is an article in McLean's magazine called Diversity Among Doctors, and it focuses around Jessica Dunkley, 
who is one of the first deaf doctors in Canada. This article follows Jessica's path through medical training, talks about the challenges she faced as a deaf doctor, including figuring out ways to communicate with surgeons in the operating room, and they developed clear surgical hoods instead of the masks that obscured people's faces so that she could lip read, and including having an interpreter uh, present for her in classes. It talks about the barriers she faced in her training, including a legal challenge that she brought forward and won against the University of British Columbia, who actually refused to provide her interpretation services for residency training. Uh, And it talks about overall how Canadian medical schools are becoming more embracing of trainees with disabilities and figuring out how to help people who have extraordinary challenges manage the rigors of medical training and then go on to become themselves doctors who have unique perspectives. So I thought it was a really great read uh, and invite you all to check it out. Okay, thanks very much for the chat today, Janice. It was good to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Talk to you again soon. 